What does impact investing for racial equity look like in practice? Moving beyond aspirations to action, today we're pleased to feature a groundbreaking case study on impact investing with a racial equity lens. Welcome to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. I'm Isaac Graves, and joining us for this episode is Asset Allocator and ASBN Board Co-Chair Valerie Redhorse Mole, CFO of the East Bay Community Foundation, who will walk us through the innovative steps her foundation took, such as rewriting their investment policy statement requiring a priority to invest in diverse founders. This important step eventually led to an LP allocation and fellow ASBN member, Brown Venture Group. Dr. Paul Gamble, one of the co-founders of BVG, will unpack how behavioral economics led to their innovative approach to funding and supporting BIPOC entrepreneurs, and how cultural residency is leading to an increased focus on impact investing in Minneapolis. Take it away, Val. So this is uh, investing with a racial equity lens, and we're going to walk you through a little bit of a case study, but we kind of started this conversation yesterday in a round circle in the racial equity working group, and I don't know if any of you were there, but it's similar ideas about the flow of capital and changing the systems and how we actually uh, create a more equitable way of distribution of capital. And... I'm so thrilled to see some of you here that are actually asset allocators, asset managers, fund managers, um, because I think we're all focused on changing the system in in bigger and bigger ways, and how that whole system works um, is really what I want to talk about a little bit, kind of the work that I've been doing and focused on how I've been trying to make some changes which led to... um, my organization making an investment into this fantastic uh, fund. So uh, before we get started, yeah, why, don't, why don't you introduce yourself before we actually get started? So I was excited to see everybody here as well. Um, my name is Dr. Paul Campbell, and I was born originally in Minnesota, grew up in Virginia Beach, so I kind of have a Minnesota East Coast combination in terms of my business style. I can go East Coast if I need to, or Midwest really nice, you know, they say mental passive aggressive, you know. So um, uh, my background is a serial entrepreneur, I did a lot of home bootstrapping in terms of trying to get funds, didn't understand how private equity worked. Once I started realizing how it worked, I'm like, man, I never was able at the table to have these conversations, I had many ideas that would have generated revenue but didn't understand that that was lacking. So background entrepreneur, bootstraps, retired music producer, also worked in telecommunications and technology sales. So I've seen the, the uh, transformative uh, impact that technology can have and the margins that were there. And so um, that's kind of what you know informed my lens as far as why we focus on a fund that uses technology entrepreneurship to actually create generational wealth within communities of color. Fantastic. I'm very happy to share the stage with you. I think a lot of you know who I am. Uh, I mean that with all humility, but I mean, as your co-chair, and as a former executive director of SBC, I'm Val Redhorse-Mole. Um, but you may not know me in this current role. Um, to just sort of bring it full circle, when I left Social Venture Circle, I was a CEO, and I had been a CEO for in my entire career, and I decided to take a role as a CFO, Chief Financial Officer, also doing CIO duties, Chief Investment Officer, for the first time in my life without also being the CEO. And I, I made that decision very methodically and intentionally because every job that I've had uh, after about 30 years as a securities professional working with the tribal communities and then at SBC working with a lot of impact investors, I kept feeling like I wanted to do more. I wanted to, to change more around capital and access to capital. And what I said yesterday is as we look at all of the SDGs and as I would experience firsthand, at least in tribal communities, issues with healthcare and poverty and you name it. Um, every issue that I seem to need, feel the need to address, I kept coming back to, it's the wealth gap, it's, it's poverty, it, it ties right back to access to capital and inequitable distribution of wealth. And so that is really what I focus on every single day. And even now, as we talk through what I'm doing at East Bay Community Foundation, I feel, I'm feeling, starting to feel like I'm not doing enough 
and thus I've just founded another entity with Natalie Holman and Nino and a few others, some of you may read about in Bluebird, and that's my next venture, trying to continue this journey of can I, can I do more? I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm 90, but, um, but anyway, in, in terms of this discussion, when I arrived at East Bay, uh, East Bay Community Foundation is in downtown Oakland. We manage about a billion dollars worth of donor advice mostly. They have had a mandate around racial equity since they were formed in 1928. For those of you that don't know Oakland, California, it is one of the most diverse cities in the country, if not the world. And it's the, the area where a lot of movements have started. Um, the Black Panthers were there. You know, I mean, it's, just, it's an incredible diverse community. But what I saw, and the reason they hired me, is the 10 to 12% of our money that gets made into grants into the community does fantastic work. It's supporting black-led organizations and immigrant and all kinds of wonderful initiatives. The other 90-some percent that's invested in the market, and this is true of almost every endowment and community foundation, is being managed by a Morgan Stanley company. There's nothing wrong with Morgan Stanley, there's nothing wrong with the group that manages the money, but it was all invested in cookie-cutter Wall Street product, making a return, but had very little impact and no diverse managers, and most of it was out of New York and Boston. Which again, not a problem for those of you from New York and Boston, but we're in Oakland. <laughs> so. I immediately said, we're going to change some things, and luckily I had the support at the top, which is key, because a lot of organizations are very afraid to touch their portfolio. And that's one of the things I do want to talk about. If we can start helping foundations and endowments and all of the trillions of dollars of money that gets managed get more comfortable with change, I think we're going to see more of this money move. But luckily, I had the support to say, if we really want to align our values, we're going to change our investment policy statement, which is called an IPS, and we're going to make it mandatory that we put money into diverse managers, and to be clear, that means owned by diverse managers, not a rep at Goldman Sachs who happens to be diverse. That's a very different structure. And then secondly, if they're diverse, they also need to have a strategy that aligns with our values, and we'll talk about theirs. They, they checked all of our boxes for us. Third, we do want a financial return. This is not charity, and guess what? Diverse managers and women managers can actually make money too. This does not have to be philanthropic capital, which is another mistake I see some entities on Wall Street making. Just as an example, a very large house, I won't name them, recently announced they were putting, I think, $300 million into diverse managers, and they did it all out of their philanthropic capital because they didn't want to take the risk. And to me, that's an insult. It's great that those managers got that money, but that's probably a one and done. There probably won't be follow-on capital, and it also means they did less due diligence, and it really was a PR move and not a serious financial move. So we, we are looking for a financial return. <laughs> and then fourth, if they had a community-based strategy. Um, we were looking for uh, the, any of funds that were in Oakland or in the California or the Bay Area, but this fund actually had a really strong community base where they were located in a community strategy, so we were okay with that. And so we changed our IPS, and then what we found is they're an emerging fund in that they're fund one, but all four of their founders who are here, right? Are you all here? Three out of four. And you all know Chris Dykstra, right? This is not an emerging professional. I can't even understand what Chris is talking about when I talk to him about tech businesses. Does anyone know how successful this man has been? <laughs> and I'm not just saying that, Chris. The point being, though, if you look at Wall Street standards, they judge a fund on the experience of the managers and how long they have worked together. If you come together new, you get all kinds of demerits in terms of the software that the, the fund manager is measuring by. I mean, the fund, the allocator is measuring by. So I had to basically change that system and say, I want to look at their entire life track record and put that into our due diligence summary. 
I'm going to fast forward because I want to let them talk. But bottom line, we changed that system as well. And I trust me, I had to go through our investment committee. I had to get approvals all throughout our own system. And then I had to get another layer of approvals at the Morgan Stanley level. And we finally got it done. And what we found is that a lot of other community foundations are wanting to do the same thing but didn't know how to do it. And so consequently, I've now given my due diligence and my summaries about these funds to about 20 other community foundations who are considering these same investments. And yesterday, many of you met Ed Duggar, who was here. He's another one of our investments, ReInventure. He's also on his fund one, but he's been around for 30 years managing money. Same situation. Um, and he actually got matching funds uh, as a result of some of the work that uh, myself and Jim Castleberry are doing. So the bottom line is we have to work together, which I think has always been uh, a strong concept at SBC and ASBC, which is now ASBN, and I will get it right, I promise. Um, but, but the point is, this will not happen if we if just Val does this on her own with a small amount of money at East Bay. This is trying to break through a system that has been in place for years and years and years. I'm, and I'm, yeah. Great question. Great question. Uh, let me repeat. process where I have to source some of this and then it goes through the system because Morgan Stanley wouldn't. Greystone, yeah. Yep, they're tough. And, and so what we have identified if we look at the supply chain of money, the easiest money to make changes should be our community foundations, foundations and endowments, it's philanthropic capital. Then family offices, uh, and there will be the greatest shift from the generational shift in family offices that's about to occur. Pension funds will come last, and I understand that. They define risk in very conservative ways. So we're also redefining risk. When I talk about looking at Chris and, and his founders and looking at their entire portfolio of their life experience and putting that into my risk metrics, that's redefining how we define risk in a Wall Street model. So yes, we are willing to share. And one thing that I noticed about the former sort of financial metrics, a lot of entities, um, the big houses, they don't share due diligence. Number one, they're worried about legal risk. They feel that if you share it, then you're making a recommendation and if something goes wrong, you know, they can get in trouble. But two, a lot of houses charge. If they do due diligence, they call it research, and then they charge for it. So again, we're breaking through a system and making some changes, but that's the only way we're going to see this money actually start to flow in, in big, significant ways. Um, and so my final point would be we, sh we made allocations to 14 funds, similar to Brown Venture, it was all uh, BIPOC managers and women uh, we have all kinds of different strategies, all community-based, um, just an incredible cohort, and we're going to continue to do this. Um, that was just in private alternatives. We're, we're doing it throughout every asset class. We're also in NIA Impact. She's talking today at one, I think. And the bottom line is right now, this particular pool of money that is all diverse is making more of a return than any other one of our pools at East Bay. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I would submit right now, because of the challenges, our diverse and women managers are working harder than anyone else. And it's just, it's unfortunate that we have to, but they are. And we're just, it's data is showing, and data will actually convince a lot of people that are, um, non-believers, so to speak. So I'm glad that we can actually have data to say this isn't just philanthropic, this isn't just feel good, this isn't just because it's the right thing to do. This is actually making more money for our portfolio, which is the purpose of investments. So um, I'm going to pass it over to you to let you finish this, but in closing, I would just say that 
my goal is to work together with people. I'm looking at Trillium over here. They've been a great partner. Um, it's, you know, someone asked me about, you know, BIPOC and women and all the different acronyms. And in all honesty, uh, when 98% of the world's asset is managed by one subset of people, it's going to take all of us to make these changes. We have to all work together. And when I find myself focusing on diverse managers, guess what? I find myself also focusing on climate and healthcare and community because that's what they're focused on. And so this really is something we should all be thinking about and it affects all of us when we think about that pipeline that ultimately gets down to the businesses. I see Tata sitting in the front row here. These are the funds that are funding our businesses alongside our impact investors. We need to support the funds that are then supporting our businesses. So it's a big circle, and I'm just thrilled that uh, at East Bay we've been able to make a small dent in this um, crazy system. But again, happy to answer questions afterwards, and want to turn it over to Dr. Palna. Thank you, Val. Uh, first, before I get into the kind of nuts and bolts of our story, if we didn't have partners like Val to, to do what she's done, it would be impossible for, for us to make progress. And I'll tell you why, because it's not just being smart, it's also having a tender heart. I like Dr. Keeney said, being tough-minded and tender-hearted is so important. Sometimes we have a stream where somebody's super smart, but they have no heart. Like, ah, it's this business. And sometimes they're so a big heart, but they think of, they're not thinking about economic stage two, and stage three, and stage four. So I really appreciate your leadership in this space and what you've done. And by the way, Nina is one of those people that I also look up to as a woman in this space. And her book, Deep Frog, if you haven't picked it up, it's really, really good. It's a book that I, I often recommend to people when they ask me, hey, Paul, how about you involved in you know, venture capital, especially talking to women. Like, you don't necessarily need to value you. You're smart, you're capable. It's just getting in the game and starting the process of, of exploring what you want, what you want to do, what you don't want to do. So I'll, I'll, st I'll, I'll step back and say, we're all four of our partners are operators in the sense that we were not traditional venture capitalists coming to the, to the table. So we actually had a different lens and we didn't have the same languages necessarily that everyone else had in the industry that kind of grew from that, that standpoint. We're all quick learners. So we understood that the traditional venture capital system had what they call exist, uh, best practices. And we tried to shift that language to say they're not really best practices because they don't work for everybody. They work for a select group of people, and, and that means that there's there's money on the table. See, you know, many other people that have seen the George Floyd and the Dante Wright and go back to Rodney King had this thing, we gotta do something, we gotta do something with this problem. And so what happened in the industry is people skipped the relationship step to go straight to solutions. And they were given they were creating solutions in our community that had they didn't even ask us if we even needed them. They assumed it. They said, Oh, I know what African Americans need. They need Education. Education is a great equalizer. So then we started putting going to school. We didn't have the money because we didn't have generational wealth, which comes back to the point why we started venture capital, is to actually pay for school so we don't have any debt when leaving. So now, as a consequence of us, everybody has been told, go to school, get an education, that's going to make open up these doors for you. We have more high school, uh, we have more ownership, home ownership amongst high school graduates than we do when we have black and brown college graduates because of student loan. So we knew we had to think about this differently. And then the lens of which we came to this was through the lens of behavior economics and understanding how do we shift the language, how do we change things so we actually can get people to realize that this is not about lack or disparities, this is about missed opportunities that you as an investor weren't even considering. And the example I use a lot of times is the story of the holiday ham where a mom was talking to the granddaughter, cooking ham in, in, in for the granddaughter, she saw her cut the end of the ham off. And she said, why are you doing that, Grandma? Well, fast forward, they talked to Grandma and Great Grandma and everybody got in the room, and Great Grandma said, because my pain was too small. <laughs> so we kind of said, okay, why is venture capital not working for communities of color? Because the thinking was too small. Because they used to use words like average youth or anti-black women or you know, a paternalistic need to help people out because when you mentor somebody, you weren't sponsoring them, you just were kind of giving pat on the back and never saying we're gonna invest in capital the same way we do other folks. So as a result, you looked at the numbers, 88 to 92% of venture capital dollars has gone into just 31% of the opportunity of non-diverse uh, talent. And I hear people say, well, Paul, I really care about this mission. I really want to make a difference, but I have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders or whatever the, the, you know, the situation is, and I just can't risk this. I'm like, what risk are you talking about? It's actually more risky not investing to our communities. Because, and they said, well, I can't find investable companies. 
So my question is, so you're saying out of the 69% of, of the population just in America, you can't find a segment of that you can invest in? And so what we did is we started shifting our thinking and our models to actually figure out what's going to work. So we, even though we started in 2018, we took some time to actually take an entrepreneurial approach to venture capital. What works, what doesn't work, why do we do the things we do, you know, and, and what, is this really the best practice? And as we started to talk to folks who went through Y Combinator or Techstar, which are great programs, they, they, the, to get entry into these programs, they said, well, you know, we love your idea, but you don't have a friends, fans, friend, friends with family runs with investments or fools. And so if, if you can't get your grandparents to invest into you, why should we? So I asked the question, I said, well, you know, if you've experienced artificial created poverty, I can't go to my grandmother or my grandfather and say, please, can I have some seed money to start my business? It doesn't exist, precisely because of the artificial created barriers to economic contribution that existed in the American ghetto. And I use the word artificial created because that's what it was. And in order to fix that, we had to kind of think differently. This is where being tough mind comes in. How do we make sure that, you know, women are not just going to, who are raising children, don't want to just quit their job to go to a com, you know, white combinator and hope to make it, they have, they also have to be caregivers as well. So how do we rethink those kind of solutions to actually make sure we're getting more people on, on the plane field when it comes to that? So, fast forward a little bit. George Floyd happened in the middle of some of our research. And every single person around the country said, we want to put money and capital into the hands of BIPOC communities. What is BIPOC? I don't know, we won't put it in the hands of the community, <laughs> right? So, and they said, and I, I kind of said, okay, you see what happened after Rodney King, people said we want to step up, but then they said, oh, I can't, I really, I care, but I can't do this because they're not investable. Oh, okay. So then I, I, the Citigroup came up with a report that I often cite, because I realized we had to shift our thinking from leading with disparities. When you leave with disparities and you talk about all the things that are wrong, you're essentially saying don't invest into the community. We're way too risky. So we shifted the thinking to uh, fear of missing out, FOMO. So I say this, do you really want to miss out on the next $13 trillion market opportunity? And I ask a question. Because by asking a question, the person has to answer it. They're gonna say no. And they're gonna say that's no, then why am I still saying no to invest into the communities? And then I, I point to the fact that that out of the, in the last 20 years alone, uh, by not investing just into black communities, there's been a $13 trillion missed business revenue opportunity, all because you couldn't find investable companies. So then we start, we start realizing, okay, so we know we're building FOMO, we've got people leaning in, but how do we bring them to the next phase to probably get that, but how do we make these investments? And I said, you gotta think about this, when you, when you consider redlining, People can say what it actually did to uh, people of color, the kings of color, but they're not thinking about the impact to their business to white contributors. Meaning, they separate our communities. We're no longer side by side. In order to, 88% of who you hire comes from your network, from who you know. And if you look down and start doing social mapping, you look, there's no people of color in there. Why is that? Well, sometimes it was an issue of proximity Stealing from redlining, so now in order to find people to hire or people to invest in, you have to be more intentional. And something that behavior economics teaches us is that people are lazy. <laughs> people want to take the path of least resistance. And if you, you can do this as a social experiment. Talk to one of your friends, start talking about problems for them to solve, and just look at them in the eye. And you'll see their eyes constrict as they're trying to solve a problem. And then build on a problem. As the problem gets bigger, all of a sudden their people are going to dilate because they stopped trying to solve a problem. And this is exactly what happens when we lead with disparities. It's like, oh, I care so deeply, but the problem is too big for me to solve. So in order to simplify, I would say, let's, let's, let's bring it down to the basic level. Let's not skip the relationships that and co-create a solution that's actually gonna work for our communities. Let's become friends first, and then we can figure out the business thing next. Because everybody knows that in order to build economies, you have to have trust. With no trust, can't, can't grow economies. So in Minnesota, what we've done is we've encouraged people, and I said this before when I was talking earlier this week, to slow down and shift their thinking from doing things for communities of color and women and BIPOC communities, which is a project, to doing things with 
which creates partnerships. And this whole thinking, you can see it when you say to these executives, we're so used to thinking bottom line, you know, turning things around, doing business. Um, but when you say with, it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Now that becomes, you get to slow down and co-create. So when we ask black and invest, uh, black founders what they need, when we ask women and people of color, I mean, just women, what they need in order to be successful, to increase the power of their success, they said, we need at-bats, we need capital. We don't need necessarily mentorships. Everybody wants to be a mentor. We need at-bats. And the simple truth is, there's a false sense of, um, I call it cheat code, essentially, uh, a false sense of worth in terms of your secret sauce, right? Oh, I know I have the secret sauce and I can actually, you know, predict these outcomes, but really, getting capital into the hands of women and people of color creates the wins, the at-bats that can, they, can hit, they can hit out at future Facebook or something like that, right? So now we have trillions of dollars that are on the table. And we have people who say they want to invest in communities of color, but they have no relationship to do so. So in Minnesota, we encourage people to do that, and now they're asking different questions. And on top of that, because George Floyd, now this is the point I want to bring to why it's different now. When George Floyd occurred in Minneapolis, people said, how on earth could this have happened in Minnesota? I mean, you, don't you have you betches all around? Everybody's super nice, Minnesota nice. Minnesota, in 2017, Objectively, from data, uh, uh, jobs, home ownership rates, investments, etc., was rated as the second worst place for people of color, black people, to live in the country. Second, then in 2020, this past year, they were ranked second best overall place to live. Two narratives, and I think back to Dr. King, two Americas, or the two Minnesotans, right? So when I'm talking to the, the, the politicians, I say we need to focus on making sure that it's second for everybody. Economic and human flourishing for all, and how do we do that? We do that by unlocking the untapped, undervalued, high potential capacity of communities of color. It's not a capacity issue. There's not a, a, a years and years of experience they have together. They have experience. It's a simple opportunity. And the way I phrase it is, Opportunity is an event. When you go to college, that's an opportunity you've been given. It's an event. Whether or not you study your class, that's your capacity, <laughs> right? So to land the plane on why we had to shift, much like you were doing, Val, and, and this thinking, we had to say, those practices that we've used for a long time, we have to challenge those, every single one of them, and say, is it a best practice, or is this an existing practice? And then once we identify what those are, we have to quickly disseminate this information like we're asking right now. Because everybody's asking the same question, how do we do this? So as we've learned raising money as a person of color, we've learned this. Don't leave disparities. You're taught in business school. Leave the pain point and then come with a solution. That actually causes investors to disengage and say you're too risky. So what we tell our, our entrepreneurs that are raising money as well is start with FOMO, then talk about the pain point, and then talk about the solution in that order. So the FOMO keeps them in long enough to realize the pain point is solvable, and then you have the solution. And it's remarkable how people stay engaged. And why do they do it? Because it's a function of behavior economics. So I'm going to stop there because I can talk a lot. <laughs> that was no. That was really good and leads to a segue. I want to build on one point before we open it up uh, for greater discussion and questions. I hope you caught something he said because this was a real education for me. I was also investing in a woman named Gayla Jennings O'Byrne. Uh, she has a fund called Walkstar. She's investing only in women of color. She's been around for 20, 30 years. And she's been pounding the pavement and having trouble raising money. And I said to her, my goodness, she's a black woman. I said, is, is it racism that you're coming up against? And she goes, well, no. She has decided it's not racism. She says it's laziness. And you said that. And I said, okay, tell me more. I want And this is when I first started the job. She said, Val, the system of finance has created a mechanism where you do the least amount of work to make the maximum amount of money. And to do what we're doing, you just heard us both describe what we've had to do. It took work. It took me a year to make some of the changes, and I know that they're working to change the system, and it's not easy. And so this is not that sort of cookie-cutter model. And when I looked at it, and Daria, you'll, you'll appreciate this, when I looked at how much we were paying 
um, our external consultants, it's extremely low. So you pay the asset allocators, meaning the people who make the decisions are like the Blackstones and the Blackrocks, and in our case, it's a Morgan Stanley company. We had, the person who was in my seat before me had talked them down to eight basis points. That is nothing. I mean, I wouldn't do it for that. So what they had decided to do, and in their defense, I don't blame them, they did a cookie cutter um, menu of managers they were going to put the money into, and it was all a lot of indices and ETFs and mutual funds, which had hidden stuff. I found we were invested in Chevron and Rio Tinto. I mean, I immediately, you know, divested of those. But it's because they weren't being paid enough to really do a lot of extra work. And so I am talking to community foundations and endowments and saying, you know what, pay a little bit more to get the kind of strategies that, that make a big difference in the world. And I know that James Cummings was here yesterday. I don't see him in the room now, but I, I want to just give a shout out. Nathan Cummings Foundation ran an RFP they ended up choosing a black-owned um, uh, couple of uh, external consultants. Two of them are dear friends of mine, Ian uh, and Lola, uh, Wes Fuller. And they're paying them market rate. They're, they're not paying eight basis points. They're paying them a market rate to actually create a diverse manager selection, kind of like what I've done at East Bay. Um, and so the point is, if we're going to change systems, it's not the lazy, easy route, and it takes some time and it takes some money. I want to build on that's a very good point, Bill. Thank you for saying that. Um, I heard a quote one time, a person said, they said, we uh, create problems with our dollars, and then we try to solve them, solve them with our pennies. You know, that, that is so true, right? And, and then when we think about this, like when we talk about the risk of not investing, like you're, you're giving small amounts of investment, and then you're saying, well, how can you be more successful? Because you didn't even talk about doing all of investments from that standpoint of view. So the thing is, when we think about constructing, and there's a concept in behavior economics called choice architecture. This is all about making a decision easier for people to do, to invest. And Chris Brooks knows I'm always obsessed. Okay, how can I make sure I craft this, this story so it's easy for people to say yes, count me in. And oddly enough, starting with friendships <laughs> is really powerful and saying let's just get to know each other because then, and this is, I, I still assume him, we want to speed a relationship. You know, fast as we can, but slow as we must. The, the fast part happens after you establish trust, right? And so the thick thinking that we have to do is, how do we make it to where it's easier for people to actually invest in community of color? We need to have more successes, which means I'm not gonna hold up to my knowledge. It's not a scarcity mentality. I was talking to a group of uh, MIT women that were trying to, um, trying to get into venture capital. Again, I said, let's, let's learn fast, I'm going to pass on this knowledge, and I want to see you here invest in the company so we can actually co-invest. And here's why it's important to have um, diverse managers, because there's lenses that people don't have based upon proximity. If you didn't grow up around African-American, indigenous communities, Latinx communities, and you start trying to, to evaluate a business deal, if you have no cultural context of their, you know, with how they, their traditions or any of that stuff, you don't know how to value the business. I was judging a competition once for a local university in Minnesota, and there was a gentleman out there that had a product that was phenomenal. He was the best, talented um, coder, and the business opportunity was large. But the, the other judges had no idea about how big the opportunity was because they didn't understand his culture. And what this gentleman couldn't do, he couldn't explain his culture in his business. And that's what happens, and this is uh, for, for so many different people. And then as a person of color, this is another thing to point out as far as when you step into a room as a person of color after going past you know, hundreds of non-diverse founders, you show up as a black person or as a person of color, as an indigenous woman, and they automatically think, their mind thinks, this is not like the others. Is this risky? Questions you get asked, you're not going to be asked by your other counterparts that didn't want for you, simply because you showed up. So when you start showing up and you start talking about disparities and everything like that, like, yep, I get it. I'm so, my heart goes up to you. Next. <laughs> so that's a very important thing for us to do. Okay, we definitely want to take questions and discussion. Daria, you have another question? So I, I'm at Morgan Stanley, and we have 
I just wanted to give you an anecdote to share how places like ours work. So we have about $400 million invested in diverse managers through our private markets, emerging managers program. Those are seeds and co-investments to see how this, this will work. Uh, we did performance on it, it was 30% IRR, very good, better than the traditional portfolio. So I went to a very large investor because the way we can get more money invested in uh, diverse managers that prefer my cars is we have 16,000 financial advisors. Those are salespeople that sell ideas to people who are investors. So I went to a large investor and I said, look, if you see a large fund of funds that we can put on our platform, we do, 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 we do the Morgan Stanley due diligence on it, we can take that product to our ultra-high net worth clients through our network of 16,000 advisors and bring big assets into this fund. And I knew he was interested in you know, doing much like we work. So I spent about a year talking to him, and in the end, he decided not to see the fund. Had a similar conversation with a group of Dominican nuns. Uh, some years back, who wanted to do climate change. Do you know the story of the Dominican nuns? Okay. Uh, so, so they came in, they said, we want to see a fund on climate change. And we want to do it with Morgan Stanley because we know you have more salespeople than anybody else. They'll sell our idea to anybody else. So we end up raising about $800 million in fund one for the nuns, and we're going to do it again for the fund two. So the point is that we are just a tool to use to change the world, right? Big firms and learning sales. We've got the people. So, but, but there's ways that you get this done, and if you can't find a large investor who says, I'll let you, Morgan Stanley, create a product that you can sell to other people. It's really selling the idea where you can show the performance of the diverse managers and say, we did 400 million, 30% IRR. And in that fund, we're seeding, we're co-investing, we're catalyzing the, the, the sector. Thank you. Yeah. Ian. So, uh, okay, regular voice. Uh, so, Paul, uh, has, uh, I run an organization with the word mentoring in the name. So, I want to circle back to something you said. We do our best to weed out folks who are mentoring because they just want to, if they're only reasons, they just want to give back. We do our best to weed that out. Imperfect, but we do. What have you seen, or what have either of you seen, for those of us without the financial resources to work alongside the capital, and maybe you have a different name for it, or maybe it's a subset of mentoring, that actually works? I'll go first and then I'll kick it off to you. Uh, mine is going to come mostly from the tribal communities. I've worked with a lot of tribal businesses, and what I've seen is Many of our tribal businesses have an amazing business plan and they know what they're doing with that particular business or product. Um, I was working with Wizzy on his Buffalo um, business at the Rosebud, which is amazing. No one needs to tell them how to raise culturally appropriate bison. What he did know was how to get it into the supply chain. So expansion of business, business modeling, and raising capital are all things that I typically would mentor someone on if they asked me for that help. I think what he was speaking to, and I'll let him speak to that, but it's when someone comes in assuming an entrepreneur needs their help, even if the entrepreneur has not asked for it. I usually wait to have someone say, this is what I need help with. And I teach entrepreneurialism at Stanford in the race and, and uh, diversity department, and so I get mostly students of color. And it's interesting to me how many students, even at Stanford, have amazing business ideas but raising capital is usually an area where most entrepreneurs need some guidance to even understand it might not be venture that you need because venture is not a fit for everyone. So usually just understanding how to raise capital and what capital is the right fit is something that I think almost everyone can use some help with. Yeah, that's, that's a great response. And I would add on to that. So um, first of all, poverty is an industry, right? And every industry has an economic incentive to keep itself around. And there's people who have been a part of the industry that don't even know they are, right? So when you have people, when I say mentoring, 
that's like saying, I already know the solution that you need prior to developing a relationship with you to understand what it is to help move those barriers. So I use the term economic barriers to contribution as a focal point. And now, if I understand what those economic barriers to contribution are, like, for example, uh, there's an organization that has a community that works with young people, and young people, many of these parents, many of their parents also have experienced artificial poverty, so um, they're great when they're in the, the, the program, when they go home, they, they, they have food deserts, right? So they're getting gift cards and things like that, yeah, and then their, their mom and dad have to take those to feed the family. Right? So when I say the mentoring, it's important to transfer knowledge and the capability, but you have to understand what it is that people need. I mean, if you went and start saying, I, again, I'll go back to the education piece, I'll say, you just need to produce results, and, and that, will, that, that makes a lot of sense to white, uh, non-diverse uh, contributors. All you have to do is get an education, produce results, and then you can kind of cook the ladder. But I did all those things. And they said, you should do something for culture. I was number one in sales in the entire country. And I was told that I couldn't uh, get a promotion because I wasn't good at putting things in Salesforce. That's kind of odd. And then they said, get, get an education. So I did. And they said, you're going to qualify. Okay. So, and this goes back to the thinking from even like the mentorship and the thinking around, what is it that we actually need? We identify the barriers to economic contribution and they're different for Latino women, they're different for indigenous women, they're different, contextually put that there. Mentoring is fine if you already identify the need and you're working with versus for. Because I learned, even in my marriage, when I was doing things for my wife, she's like, I never asked you to do that. I'm like, oh, no, I never asked you to do that. We were called partnership, and it's like, okay, got it. So my point in saying that is, maybe we should come up with a different word, but it's not about paternalistic, I'm gonna help you, you need my help. It's like, I'm gonna learn something from you, we're gonna learn something from each other, and we're gonna identify those barriers. And one final note, which is a great question, Ian. So for the record, Ian Fitz asked that question, and shout out to him. Um, some of you know that uh, if you read the Bloomberg article, I just founded a business with Natalie Molina Nino, Jim Castleberry, and Ashir Shah, and it's focused on creating an infrastructure for financial services for all BIPOC businesses and financial services. So it's the RIAs and the OCIOs and the GPs, but it's the entire cycle of finance. And one of the things we noticed related to this topic, there is a lot of support for new businesses. There are SBA loans, there are CDFI loans, there's microfinance, there's mentoring for your in your incubators. And, but what happens, why don't we have uh, a black-owned Target and a Latinx GE, you know? Something happens along the route where our BIPOC businesses lose that support. And the Caucasian-led businesses that have historically had the big business in, the, in this country are supported not by small business loans, but by big business loans and mergers and acquisitions and access to large amounts of capital and mentoring that maybe isn't called mentoring, but it is this sort of internal and infrastructure support that says, oh, here's the target company, let me help you with this merger, and then you're gonna become this behemoth company. So we believe that there is a gap, and that gap needs to be filled, and that's what we're aiming to do with Know, because that is simply how you grow, and you don't just need mentoring and support when you're a small business. You need it along the whole journey. Thank you. Um, so um, I think that we have a unique perspective because we get DBQs and then we're also putting them out in our private fund space. So I wanted to ask you if you had some other thoughts about how we can kind of break out the lazy path. You're absolutely right, Mel, right? We want somebody else to prove the concept before we touch it. And so um, I'll give a couple examples as we were doing our fund to fund. We read the data room before we sent our DDQ, so we weren't asking the same questions that have already been answered and wasting the entrepreneur's time, or the VC's time. Um, and the other was um, investing in the first close. We found a lot of partners weren't willing to come in. They would tell us, oh, it's great, we love them. Once they get that first close, we're in. Well, how are you gonna get that, right? So um, it'd be interesting to me if you have other things that you found in your process, Val, or Dr. Paul, as you're doing due diligence, that we could do to help with the process, you know, where we're taking shortcuts and we're making your life more difficult, right? 
I do think um, interaction with other people that have invested. So LPs need to talk. And um, just as an example, with the Ed, Ed Duggar's Fund reinventure, I had crafted my own four pages of due diligence that I thought was pretty good. And then Jim Castleberry, who was at Forest Bay, basically said, I have 28 pages that I had four analysts do. He sent it to me. And if we keep that story going, not only did that help me get my money allocated to him, first time fund manager, he got a match from Mass Mutual, I think. I could, and, and so it just kept going. So that shared due diligence, and I've done that with all of my 14 cohorts. Um, they're not a cohort, they're, they're GPs. I call them my cohort. But the 14 that I've invested in at East Bay, I have shared my due diligence on them. I, I did a call for you guys with someone, um, and, and I'm doing it for everyone. I want to shout it from the rooftops, and I think we need to encourage that. And I also think you, you don't need to be afraid of the first close. But here's the one thing that I, I see lacking. You also need to commit money for follow-on investment. Because to your point, following George Floyd, we saw a lot of reactionary investments. And a lot of those reactionary investments are not thinking about follow-on. And if we, again, go back to my analysis of the system as it exists and why Blackstone and BlackRock and how, how they all got big, those relationships allow for follow-on money and more follow-on money. And so, my investment committee supported me when I said, we're going to keep some money aside so that we're going to put more money into these 14 for their next fund or their next round. We're not going to just leave them as if we're just doing this to check some box. So that's you know some, some ways of thinking about it. So hi, I'm Brad Michael with Social Lab. Hi, Brad. So, Valerie, I wanted to uh, pick up on, on something you were talking about, about the, the uh, I think you called it the entire cycle of capital or finance. And I wanted to pick up on that um, and, and bring up that, um, you know, there is also a group of capital that resides in the community, grassroots capital, um, that you know, really is today, you know, unleveraged. And people from the community have an interest to participate uh, in you know, these new opportunities, but they don't have a pathway. So a lot of the opportunities that, that we're creating, uh, we also need to think creatively, how do we create a pathway for everyone to be able to participate? And it's an opportunity for them to invest in their community. It's an opportunity for them to participate in development. Great question. So you've heard me um, mention Natalie Molina Nino a few times. A lot of you know her. She should probably have been here, but she's busy. And um, she is an investor who is just an individual investor. And she has she's from the Latinx community. Obviously, she's Ecuadorian and Colombian. She ran into the same issue. And so one of her specialties is creating SPVs, special purpose vehicles, so that the buy-in might be 5,000. And then you put it all together to invest at the minimum, whatever the, whether it's a direct investment into a company or into a fund. Most of the funds that we invested in, their minimum investments were somewhere about 500,000 to a million. Um, some of them came down for us because I was, for some reason, when we did the math, I was able to do 400,000 as our initial investment. But I know a lot of folks that would love to invest in these funds that maybe have 10 to 50,000. So the idea of SPV should be one that I think is explored to get some of that aggregate money together. I want to add on to a couple of the things that both of you guys said. There's also this ego thing we have to get over. Like, we, we don't know. Like, in, in Minnesota, the reason why it's, it's, it's a um, number two is because they don't want to say, do I say African-American or people of color? So instead of looking dumb, they stop talking and they, don't, they, set, they set up against up relationally. So the idea for us to actually slow down the relationship step is part of the whole due diligence process too. Because if we don't have a relationship, everything looks risky. If all you know is what you see on TV from about black and brown communities, video games that people are playing, it all has a negative connotation as far as black people are in need of paternalistic health. 
um, they're uneducated, you know, all these different things, the children are at risk. So we need to first, there's different funds in the, in the, in the different cities that say, we're going to only be funded in St. Paul or Minneapolis. And I'm like, you know what, a kid who's poor doesn't care what college he sleeps on. But as Minneapolis or St. Paul, we need to invest into the community so that we can start, you know, uh, going across the whole, the whole region. And secondly, is this idea of uh, how do we get people of color even into funds? Who have been captured out of that? And that's something that we think of all the time and being creative about that. Because it's not enough if we just get a bunch of non-diverse investors to come into our fund. We have to figure out how do we get fund capital back into it, back into indigenous communities. So that circulates from that perspective. So I appreciate all the questions. We are, we are pretty much done here time-wise. I want to thank everyone and also, reach out to me. I am happy to share anything I talked about. I'm easy to reach. I'm on the internet, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on this Wova Hoova, whatever it's called. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from you because we all have to work together. I keep saying that, but it's, you know, our native communities learned a long time ago. We work together as a community and we get things done. Thank you, listeners, for joining us, and a special thank you to Valerie Redhorse Mole and Dr. Paul Campbell for joining us on today's episode of the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. ASBN's vision is a sustainable economy that is stakeholder-driven, regenerative, just, and prosperous. Visit us at asbnetwork.org and consider joining the movement. I'm Isaac Graves. Thanks for listening.